Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Well, hi there, and welcome along to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell. Today, I was joined by Sean Duffy. Sean is a chartered accountant with extensive experience in finance, media, and capital markets. He specialises in corporate communications advice during periods of corporate activity, including mergers and acquisitions, capital raisings, IPOs and shareholder disputes. Prior to starting Alchemy, an independent corporate consultancy firm specialising in investor relations and corporate communications, Sean was the Australian head of US firm FTI Consulting's Australian Strategic Communications Practice. In that role, he acted as lead communications advisor on some of Western Australia's most significant transactions, including the Aussie Dollars 1.2 billion Amcon Vocus merger, IINet's 1.6 billion takeover by TPG, Woodside's 2.75 billion acquisition of Apache's Australian asset portfolio, and the 1.8 billion Aussie Dollars takeover of Aurora Oil and Gas. Sean is currently the CEO of Reset Mind Sciences, a subsidiary of Little Green Pharma. Drawing on the medicinal cannabis expertise and infrastructure established within Little Green Pharma, Sean is now more focused on the use of psilocybin to treat mental illness. I really enjoyed my chat with Sean. It was a really interesting and I think useful perspective going forward. And he brings, as you can hear, a really broad suite of top level experience. So it's great to have him in the space. So I hope you enjoy the chat and stick around at the end because I have some exciting news about some upcoming live events. But as always, I'll see you on the other side. I'm joined here with Sean, who is the CEO of Reset Mind Sciences, a subsidiary of Little Green Pharma. Thanks very much for um, being with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, well, uh, just the theatre of the mind. Um, we are in uh, the name of this. It's the part of the state state treasury building in the city centre in Perth. But the place, what's the name of the, the Mellow House? Me- Mellow House was so a really beautiful facility. Sean, uh, we were obviously chatting off mic a little bit about a few areas that we want to cover. And as always on the podcast, we're not really wanting to go, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. We're just wanting to. I suppose, excuse the pun, get into the weeds a wee bit with things. Um, but before we get on to your whole, you know, this epoch of your life where you are functioning as a CEO of one of, I think, one of the best positioned companies in, in the state, if not the country, um, tell me a little bit about your professional background and your sort of, inverted quotes, former life before you came to, to psychedelic Madison, oh, I will. You, um, you're probably sitting there thinking, "What the hell is this accounting background, <laughs> ostensibly capitalist, doing in the psychedelics world?" Um, I've come to it. Um, I, I look very different. I know from a lot of the people that you've had on your podcast before. I'm not a clinician. I'm not from a healthcare background. Um, my journey is uh, into this area has been has been very different and completely unexpected as well. So I'm from an accounting background, going way back. But I spent, um, up until 2020, I spent a decade running uh, the Australian practice of a big American consulting firm. Um, I spent a lot of time consulting to 
uh, a lot of companies listed on various stock exchanges over their relationships with the capital markets. And uh, that was a really intense job. Really, uh, a lot of the times of working with companies, it's in a period of real intensity. So I had um, IDM marked in 2020, I'd been doing that for 10 years and turned 50. And while they're just numbers, it seemed like a, a nice point to draw a line in the sand. And that, that was always going to be my end time for doing that. So I did that and um, as of mid-2020, I was uh, just doing some private consulting. My objective from that point in was going to be to start to enjoy my 50s, slow down pace slightly and um, play a bit of golf during the week when the courses were quieter. (laughs) And um, so I was doing that and and really enjoying it. And um, one of the companies that I was consulting to in that private role was Little Green Farmer. Um, I've known uh, some of the people behind Little Green Farmer since, um, well, even before their Little Green Farmer role in previous lives. So I was um, in the background there doing some advisory work, and that was great. Um, But perhaps then tangentially, I'd been following the world of psychedelics, or really the renaissance of psychedelics, for probably three or four years in earnest. Um, My wife has dealt with depression uh, her whole adult life, and um, I think I don't want to in any way create the impression that she's cowering away in the corner struggling, but she, you know, she's uh, had various courses of antidepressants and so we've we've seen that world of the roller coaster of antidepressants and the various um, uh, side effects that they come with. Um, but then on the flip side, you know, they've she lives a, a great life, we've got a really good life together, teenage kids, busy life and, um, you know, she's very creative and empathetic, built our, you know, designed and built our house. And so that's been fantastic. But with an open mind, we were looking at where treatment might go for, for depression and um, obviously started looking at psychedelics as a next wave of, of treatment. So over a period of, you know, started with Michael Pollan's book, as probably most people that are interested in psychedelics and, and other things. And then just from my background, I started looking at what was happening corporately in the space, um, and it was pretty clear to me that uh, a number of the either the people behind the companies coming into the area or the companies that had come into it had a background in in cannabis. Um, I think there's a lot of crossover in the the lessons that have been learned over taking a drug that was seen as a harmful recreational drug into a medicinal space. Um, so, um, so that interest really led to a conversation that built some momentum over time with Little Green Farmer um, as to a logical extra uh, arm for their business. Um, the conversation was really more from the perspective as a corporate advisor as I was as to how they might get into this, how it might look. Um, and they had um, they'd done a lot of their own work in the sphere and, and took a lot of interest in it. And so really early last year, um, yeah, it was about 12 months ago, the conversation kind of went to the point, well, you seem pretty enthusiastic about it. Why don't you put your money where your mouth is and come and run it? <laughs> so um, so I did. Uh, I, I, you know, it was a divergence from my plan of where, mm-hmm. of where work life was going, but um, it's something that I believe very passionately in and, uh, you know, having lived um, the, the life we have and, and, you know, with my wife's own experience, I didn't need any convincing over the the need and the change that psychedelics could yeah. deliver to people, and um, certainly from the you know from the experience that I've had 
uh, no one seems to enjoy being on antidepressants. Antidepressants seem to be able to, and certainly, you know, my wife lives a very full, active life, you know, busy life with all that, with our kids and all the going on and the house and um, antidepressants are fantastic at, at um, you know, that level of, or enabling that level of functionality and, and to manage um, uh, depression and anxiety and the like. But equally, they're not, they're not the silver bullet either and you know they're very much a palliative treatment that manages symptoms as opposed to dealing with underlying cause and so um this is an area that i i have a lot of interest in and um so i'd only have gone back to full-time work for something that that i had a had a belief in it probably was i was looking at perhaps some other green or climate type technologies or something like this so um so that's my my route to get here it's been I've certainly found coming into this space and I haven't had a massive amount of exposure through my work life to uh, mental health care professionals and I think they always look at me, when they first meet me, they look at me with a very cautious eye, sceptical yeah. eye as to whether I'm this capitalist that's come into the sphere just to make a buck over some, off something that's got some momentum. But um, no, my, my motivations are that um, that this is an area that, that I believe in and... And I think needs in order to bring it to reality, to bring it to fruition, it does need it needs money, it needs research, um, and it, it needs, needs expertise. It needs expertise, regardless what field that expertise might. That's be right. In, whether it's therapeutic or fiscal, you know, yep. I say expertise is the base note. And, and I feel like um, you know, I'm able, one of the things I hope I'm able to bring is that I've, I've got a lot of corporate experience and in putting together a company right from the start that's very credible, um, very. Uh, top end people involved with it, I think that helps bring it to reality. So, um, um, to date, we're a, we're a subsidiary of Little Green Pharma. Uh, it's a very logical step out for them. They've been funding our our activities, and um, and it's been a it's only been well, it's been less than twelve months. I've been doing it full time, but it's been a hell of a ride. It's been great fun. Yeah, it seems like just from we, we myself and Sean had met for coffee about a week or two ago, and it seems like as cliched as this may sound, it's given you a new lease of life. But for, you know, forget about the industry and even the, the familial things. You, you seem like you've got a bit of a spring in your step from <laughs> it's, from this. Is that a fair assessment? It, it is. I, I have to say, I haven't got out of bed with as much spring in my step for work for a yeah. long time, maybe ever. Yeah. And um, it's funny you actually say that. I, I was I caught up with a guy yesterday who um, corporate lawyer who has a interest in psychedelics. We were just talking about. Um, talking about my journey and, and what we're doing and and he interrupted the conversation and he said um if you don't mind me saying uh he said you really got your twinkle in your eye back he said you were looking <laughs> flat going back a while there and um yeah. you know a decade of uh of hard corporate consulting will do that to you so <laughs> exactly yeah you've been in the trenches i just had this mental image on of you know when you were sort of cashing out and you were on the there's three guys waiting on the golf tee going where the fuck is Sean <laughs> <laughs> he said he was going to get a coffee and he's it's been a year ago <laughs> but um there's so many things I want to sort of double click on what you've said because I sure. think in a way that it's fantastic and thanks for that overview because it really lays out the journey and you know <clears throat> that seems like a mawkish word but as you're laying that out for me I'm hearing unconscious subconscious seeds being planted in your own life certain conversations that you've had you know uh, due diligence in a way but yep. it's it's like uh 
there's a band I like called uh, Snow Patrol. They had a big hit, and then they were everywhere. Yeah. And you know, everyone's like an overnight success. But it's like chasing cars. We, we, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he says we've been doing this for ten years. You know, w- yeah. this was the last thing which tipped us over. So it sounds like, and, and also well done for being the guy who said he's gonna, you know ostensibly round up one phase of his life and then actually does it because you know I worked with a lot of people who were like especially here in WA where a lot of chaps had you know five ten year plans in the mining sector and you know I'm like it's a 25 year plan that's still still infinite regress um so to maybe just go back a little bit um I'd love to actually know before we get into the the little green pharma and then how this sort of excuse the pun organic offshoot of the subsidiary and then we'll definitely talk a lot more about reset mind sciences in that context but i don't i'm actually very interested in your experience in investor relationships because this is a piece of the puzzle which maps i think i've cornered quite well cornered isn't the right word but how to court uh inform manage be a custodian for major gifts how does that navigate in the current financial environment um and I know that they're not you know, identical things, but I would imagine there's been a lot of transferable skills that you can see are going to be very useful to move capital where you think it needs to go. So I'd love to dig in a little bit more about you know, your time at FDA Consulting. What, what was a day, an average day looking like and how have you found skills being transferable into your new role? Yeah, look, I think... So, so my main expertise. So, so if we backtrack, I come from a, a chartered accounting background. So I'm trained in uh, financials and accounting. Um, I know my way around a set of financial statements, and um, I, I guess so. I, I worked prior to FTI Consulting. I used to run investor relations for a couple of large listed companies, um, and then went into the advisory world. So. Uh, I know this isn't a, an advisor, isn't an investor relations podcast, but actually in Western Australia, I was one of the very first people to have investor relations on my business card as a title back in the mid nineties. So I actually had to explain to people what it meant. This is not your first time uh, zigging <laughs> when everyone's zagging. Then no. I'm saying there's a pattern here. So I, um, I, I guess what, what I've learned over the years. So, so perhaps you asked the question around what I did at FTI Consulting. Yeah. So where I would normally be brought in is where a company has a major event happening that's outside of its normal course of operations. So it might have been a takeover. They might have been raising capital. They might have been in a dispute with some of their shareholders. They might have been disquiet at the board table. So all these sorts of major out-of-the-ordinary events. And um, when you are dealing with events like that, that in the ordinary course of business, you might only deal with once every 10 years, they can be paralyzing to deal with. When you bring someone in, like when I was brought in, my life was to deal with these types of situations. You bring a level of calmness and a level of level-headedness to these situations. And also you've got a pretty good idea of how these things will play out. Um, so, so that's when I was generally brought in. Also too, to a, I was often brought into situations that... Um, you hear it spoken of a lot where a company will say, you know, our sh- our sh- we're undervalued, our share price is too low, what are we doing wrong? And so it may not be that there's a major event, just that they feel the market doesn't understand them. So what I've learnt, what I've been exposed to a lot is the decisions around investors' allocation of capital. What, when they, what drives their decision, what they take into consideration in their decision to allocate capital when they're happy, when they're not happy, what they expect from companies. I think from a company's perspective, if you get right back to the fundamentals, 
to take uh, investment funds from the external market is a real responsibility. You have an, a responsibility to give back. It, when, when you take money from someone, you have a responsibility to give back to them more than you took from them. They're only investing in you because they think there's some good. Now, that you, you mentioned MAPS before. That doesn't necessarily have to be a financial return. In the case of MAPS, that money is being given for philanthropic reasons, but equally a donor doesn't expect that that money is just going to be wasted. They expect no, there will there's be... There's a return on investment. There's, there's a return, whether it's and that's, in that instance, the return is the progression of, of psychedelics. And the track record that MAPS has built up in the successful clinical trials it's been able to, uh, to execute, in the public education and advocacy it's been able to execute, that's built up a level of trust within the philanthropic community so that people are comfortable that these guys are responsible custodians of money. It's really no different from a, from a, finan- from a, a listed corporate environment to a philanthropic environment. If you want people to invest into a concept, they've got to understand what they're investing in and trust that you are a responsible custodian of that money. Um, so, um, so I guess I've spent my whole work life in that, in that little nexus between, um, between companies and the investors and whether that's working for the company myself or coming into situations where and that's gone pear-shaped yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're trying to repair it. I, whenever you're saying, oh, I have, you know, I'm not coming from a therapeutic background, had I, um, had I, you know, switched out a few terms there where it's like, um, <laughs> you know, uh, fiscal crisis, uh, you know, co, you know, co-partners in a business. And it sounds like the work that a marriage guidance <laughs> yeah. counselor does. You know, this it is does. in crisis. Here comes the level-headed uh, mediator. To, um, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be facetious. And as you said, it's not always about just you know a reflexive response to some internal or external crisis. There is obviously yeah. people needing some advice and some positioning on how to help you know, the market understand them better. So the That's right. And, and I think what, what came with having been around the traps a fair bit and having been in a lot of those situations is more than just um, looking at the, the theoretical mechanics of the financial markets and the movement of capital, that type of thing, is looking at the human nature that's driving the <laughs> yeah. two sides. Yeah. And oftentimes there's pride or greed or, or whatever involved and being able to manage around those uh, yeah. it became a really important part of what I was doing. Well, what is fascinating to me, and maybe everything looks like a nail to a hammer, but we're here in the building. I was having a coffee downstairs, and you know, I'm asked for my vaccine passport, and I'm thinking the the, the pandemic has reiterated to us, I believe, that this gargantuan task of creating a vaccine like that was was quite well, quite you know, I think the human race did quite well. Getting a needle to go in shoulders has proven to be the, the much more complicated task. So it's not at the level of the, you know, biomechanics. It's at the level of interpersonal relationships. It's not at the level of the mechanics of the market. It's, it's the level of relationships between people, you know, trading with human beings. Is that a fair sort of analogy? Uh, do you oh, completely, completely. Yeah. And actually, it, it just reminds me of a, a point sort of picks up a little bit on an, an earlier point you made. Since I've started doing what I'm doing, I've had a lot of conversations with people that I've known through my corporate life, whether they're company directors or lawyers or accountants or investment bankers or the like, wanting to know what I'm up to. And so these are people that I might have had professional relationships with over a long period of time and known them really only at that, at that business corporate level around, what they, around their particular expertise. 
I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people where I tell them what I'm doing now, where it then um, – and, and my wife's been happy for me to share our story um, in, in the conversations I've had. I can't tell you how many times the conversations I've had with these corporate contacts I've had immediately go down a level of depth into their own personal story or their partner or their child or their parent and their their own exposure to mental health, whether it's depression or anxiety or PTSD or other mental illnesses that are around. But um, the, the number of people that have said to me, anything I can do to help, so these are people from my old corporate life as opposed to clinical world. The number of people that have said, anything I can do to help, just call. And um, it, it's really uh, – it, it's been – we talked about work being more satisfying. When you're having these conversations with people that have known at a at a 10,000-foot corporate professional type level to all of a sudden get an exposure to them as broader people and to their – um, you know, everyone's dealing with their stuff. At home. You know, with, no one hasn't has it all plain sailing. And for them, for people to open up and start sharing about that, it, it really that sort of thing wouldn't happen. It wouldn't have happened in my previous life. And and doing this now, the um, the number of those conversations has been amazing. It it would be fascinating. I mean, obviously, we want to protect, you know, respect people's confidentiality. But it sounds like you've got such a big data set on that you could almost give me a motif of what, how that goes more specifically. So yeah. you're you're speaking to people who you've known for a long time. Uh, they're, which is a very common experience, is what are you doing now? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe the undercurrent is, how did you get out? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's interesting, actually. So it, you mentioned how I sort of stuck to my plan of hitting 50 in 10 years and, and um, finishing up. When I did that, and this has continued on, I can't tell you the number of people that have come to me and said, oh, I'm thinking of doing something similar. How do I – what did you do? What were you thinking? How did it play out? And, um, of course, I'm only ever encouraging of doing it. And, and you know, you play that forward a little bit. I wouldn't have been open to the possibilities and be doing something like I'm doing now if I hadn't taken the safety net away. And can, can I actually double-click on that? Because as opposed to being, st- like, too tangential, I actually think this is very – important almost like a little PSA section so in a, in a different way I've come from you know my initial training was as a dentist it's completely different in my world now it is a very common question that I get asked and I know you're operating at a different scale but I'd say there are first principles things which you would advise uh, if someone comes to you they're, they're 42 and they're you can you can pull them aside their heads in their hands they either want to get out they want to do something else so there's going to be a lot of people here who we could use in the psychedelic space, who need to shuffle things around on the board so that they can free up the time and the resources to come and help. So someone who's listening to this who is thinking along those lines, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't want to do this till I'm 65 and then play golf. What are the principles of doing that? Would you have any distilled? Well, that's a, that's a tough question. I think um, it was a plan in my mind that uh, – and, and bear in mind, my plan wasn't with a view of getting into psychedelics. My, my, <laughs> exactly, my plan yeah. was the, the psychedelics yeah. happened by accident. But in a way, you didn't need to know. You just knew there was going to be something coming That's right. after it. That's right. And so um, it, it wasn't a case of getting out of bed one morning and deciding that I was going to do it. I, I, uh, I think over a period of time, 
you know, the, the intensity of, of a job like I had does take its toll and you do start asking yourself questions of how, how much longer am I going to yeah, do yeah. this for? And I suppose where I got to mentally was just I'm not going to just keep running on the treadmill just for the sake of it, it and and it's not going to change unless I make some conscious decisions and take action to do it. And so um, uh, that was a thought process that was probably bubbling away for – I don't know, maybe five years or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just I, I earmarked that time. Um, my kids are a bit older now. They, I've got sort of eighteen, nearly seventeen, and fifteen. So, um, you know, just at that phase of life where it was a it was a nice logical point to change change the pace a little bit. It almost sounds like you're you're looking. It's like you're at a T junction and there's cars coming, and you know you don't just wait for the gap and then go. You're, yeah. you're, you're predicting. You know this car is going to come past. You know this is kids are going to be out of the house or whatever the case is. Yeah. Um, so I suppose I, I just find that very useful, and uh, and I took some mentorship from other people in switching and. It sounds like a few of the things you've distilled basically think about it for a long time, but act in the background, yes. you know, pick your moment, let people maybe know in advance and those yeah. sort of seemingly arbitrary, you know, 40, 50, whatever the case is. I think, I think they stick in our heads for a reason. You yeah. know, it's, it, yeah, they it, do. it's, it doesn't really matter, but if it's 50 or 51, but there is yeah. something about those, you know, timestamp moments where it's like, okay. And I had worked with a lot of people just in an advisory capacity who, I think a lot of us get stuck in a mindset that you have to earn a living by having a full-time job that you go to nine to five. And I work with a lot of people who who earn their living from bits and pieces of different things, whether it's board roles or a bit of advisory. And and so it, it, it had opened my mind to the possibility that work doesn't have to be a full-time job. Portfolio um, of work. Yeah, exactly right. And, and that allows you to do different things, to, to be flexible. And when, when you're only answerable to yourself, you've got the flexibility to, to go whichever direction it takes interest. But, um, yeah, it's been a – I haven't really reflected on it consciously like we're doing here, but um, that really was – and I did um, – so I finished in – uh, finished at FTI in 2020. The first half of 2019, I did take a, a sabbatical of a few months. I came back from Christmas after the year before and I thought, whoa, I'm still out of steam here. And um, I spoke to my overlords in New York and um, <laughs> I said, you know, I'm, I'm running out of gas here. And, and they said, well, just go and have a break. Just, just take a few months out. And that either recharges your battery for another few years or we know – we know that, that you're done, and, and it was the latter. Um, and my mum died during that time too, so, you know, that leaves you in a reflective, what's life all about, where's this all going? So that was a nice – that, that really cemented in my mind that this is the direction we're going now. Um, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, and I think that a lot of people, you know, without getting too woo-woo about it, it's like the great pause has caused everyone to reflect on their uh, mortal- mortality. No doubt. And coming in a wee bit as a side thing on, on psychedelics is a whole spiel about hacking health and extending your long- longevity. And that's all great, as long as at the core of it it isn't a, a rejection or a repudiation of death, because, you know... <laughs> Even you know we're, we're all we're all shuffling towards the same place. Where an inevitable end for exactly. Us, so that brings us back a little bit to um, these conversations that you've been having with people. Uh, that must be very 
enthusing to have known someone on one level for you know 20 25 odd years and then just yeah. see this whole other oh, side to them it just opens up absolutely um so we uh, we were discussing a little bit about how people are telling you stories probably opening up a lot more to you are there any common threads is it is it people finding their kids are struggling or is it partners or what what it, I, well look i'd say the common thread is that mental health concerns are everywhere that there's no one's immune from it i, I just uh, everyone i've spoken to in these conversation it's either them or you're one removed from someone totally. that's got uh, that's that's got a story to tell so um i look i have a bit of a theory that um i don't have any anything empirical empirical to back it up but i reckon uh social media is a cancer for mental health um, I don't. I personally, I'm not on any social media. I'm not on Facebook, Instagram, anything other than for professional reasons on LinkedIn. But um, I, I just don't think it adds anything to life. <laughs> it adds discontent, and people have these curated lives online that aren't real, and everyone Bullshit. else sort of feels like they're they're falling short, whether it's in experience or appearance or those these types of things. So, um, I mean, it's probably stating the bleeding obvious that in that. Um, you know that social media active demographic whether it's you know teens through to 20s and the like that uh mental health uh, i think it's really interesting that you know the number of or the the volume of antidepressants is only uh, that are issued is going up and up and up and up i saw a stunning statistic earlier this week that said that in the uh 12 months to um june 21 there were 4.7 million antidepressant prescriptions issued in australia 4.7 million i can't it's unfathomable so i also think people need to know internationally that we don't have a very big population no there's a relative ratio that is absolutely that's a stunning stunning percentage of the overall population in the show notes but wow and so so these drugs are being issued but all we read about and all we hear about is a is a mental health epidemic and so they're not solving any problems and so uh, I just feel like and, – and I don't in any way – I'm not in any way coming from the position that, um, that psychedelics are going to be the silver bullet, the panacea that's going to cure the world of mental health. But to have another treatment option that's available that is potentially curative as opposed to palliative is, is something we just have to explore. And, um, uh, and you know, there's, there's people with varying levels of expertise and backgrounds that come to this – uh, come to this party and um, it, it, it takes more than just clinical research to bring it to reality. Oh, absolutely. This, um, just to, to double click on what you were saying about social media, I'm actually going to link to some recent work that has been published as both an op-ed and it's off the back of some science that Jonathan Haidt, who I think is one of the most measured and empirical voices on this topic and he's quite confident now confident enough to state it in a causal direction that the mental health crisis that we're seeing disproportionately with girls um and this is to speak to gene twangy's work as well it is because of social media and in particular platforms like instagram so you know they don't careful scientists like that don't make those types of claims without being fairly sure quietly confident because they know that the lawyers will sweep in and just you know take them out from their legs out from under them so i feel exactly the same i feel like we're going to look back in a generation and it's like passive smoking 
you know, it's really of a similar magnitude uh, at a cognitive level or at their respiratory level. I haven't really been able to promote the podcast through social media simply because when I'm on it, I feel unwell. You know, and literally I've taken a break from it for long enough. And the same as you, I don't have it on my phones. I will just put a blast of, you know, the podcast is up because I think that is really important for psychedelia generally to understand is that I'm really concerned that the the commodification of psychedelics is actually not really coming from the capitalist side. It's more coming from the social media side of things. And so I just wanted to, to concur with you there because this spike in symptomat- symptomatic treatments like SSRIs is indicative of something, a meaning crisis in our society, and we're trying to fill that hole with, what, Facebook? It's bullshit. And everybody knows it. And a, a well-curated, well-supported psychedelic experience will cut through that illusion like a knife, hot knife through butter. So uh, everyone who's in this space, beware don't try and solve the problem with the thing which created it in the first place, namely promoting the shit out of your thing through one platform or the other. I don't that's know if right. that's something which you would No, look, I completely second. agree. I just don't feel, um, I don't feel my life is any lesser for not having a Facebook page or an Instagram no, account. No. <laughs> yeah, And I just said, uh, we won't even go there. I'm so glad we were just chatting a few friends and me about how glad we are that we sort of managed to somehow corral partners in our life before. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. Because I just, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, not every, not every revolution is, is good. Um, so, yeah, you're 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 saying this point about people in your world, and which is, let's be honest, you know, disproportionately highly, you know, adverted quotes, functional people are still either themselves or one step removed from a pretty serious exposure to mental health concerns. So we can sort of extrapolate out in ways that we're all in this together. Um, once you explain to people that there is a role for their skill sets. I would imagine the next question is, you know, I'm interested in you talk on the personal level. I would imagine the next question is something along the lines of either, how can I help, you know, professionally? Uh, you know, is that sort of a, a sort of oh, completely? Yeah. And what yeah. what are what are the nature of that conversation? I've had so many people, you know, they're sort of uh, they're in whatever jobs, whatever they're doing, and they kind of tentatively work to the point where they get the confidence <laughs> up to say. So can I come and work for you at some point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> I've yeah. had a lot of those conversations, and. I think one of the things – so so I guess what I'm trying to do with Reset is build a business that is going to be sustainable and successful in the psychedelic space over time. And so in order to do that, as a, as a business, it needs all of the skills that any other business needs. And so, you know, you think, any, think of any business, there's people with – uh, a technical proficiency in whatever the operations of a company are. And, and in the case of psychedelics, you're probably talking about more your medical researchers, your psychiatrists, your clinical psychologists. But everything that goes around that still has to be there. Psychedelics isn't a special case in the way a company has to be structured. Um, and so all of the normal skills that are needed to build a successful business are needed in psychedelics. So whether that's your accountants or your lawyers or uh, your human resources or, or whatever, whatever the, the skills are, you don't have to go and become a clinical psych in order to be involved in, in psychedelics. And um, I think there's, there's, there's enough momentum starting. There's other companies out there in the psychedelic space, uh, whether they're in the listed market or in the private market, that 
it does feel like there's an industry forming forming slowly, but there's an industry forming. And so for people that are interested in it, there's, it may well be that they want to have a complete change of direction and, and move into the, the actual patient-facing care side of it. I feel like the the likelihood is that we will get to that point in Australia where there's a there's a profession to be able to be done in that regard. But that's not the only way to be involved. There's there's proper companies have to be built, and I suppose that's. I keep coming back to it. That, that's what I feel I bring. I know totally. how a good company looks. I know what an investable company looks like. Uh, so you're looking at you're taking that perspective on you know. You're in the market, big capital M market. Yeah. I'm looking at how you're looking. Yeah. Um. And we, I want then. I want to get into you know how we go from LGP through to reset. Sure, that, that would be an interesting sort yeah. of uh, chronology. Are there mistakes that you're seeing companies make in terms of how they're you know positioning and looking to the to the market? The, so, what are the cardinal sins that they're making? So, one of the questions. I, so back in my advisory life, one of the questions I would always ask myself when I was dealing with the companies: Would I invest yeah. my own money in this company? <laughs> yeah. And in the vast majority of cases vast vast majority of cases the answer is no and there might be and there's all kinds of reasons why that might be the boards you know just uh spent spent, they're spent or they're just killing time type of thing yeah or um you know the way they've gone about accessing the market or they've got too much debt or there's lots of reasons why you might not and then occasionally you come across one where you go oh yeah i like that one that that looks really good and so all of those factors that have gone into it um, you ask are there areas that are doing wrong people bugger up every area of corporate <laughs> life <laughs> yeah, we have a whole every of area of corporate life how, how and all the different ways people can fuck yeah. themselves into the market yeah. yeah and so um i suppose what i'm trying to do is of the, the beauty of reset is it started from scratch it's an absolute clean slate i'm trying to set it up right from the start with the experience i've had in what makes a company attractive we can we can do that from the start. We don't have to correct historical errors or anything like that. One of the areas that I think that I'm that I'm really keen, if we look back to the start of the cannabis market into the listed market, it was a it was a really difficult time. And there's only a few quality companies like Little Green Farmer that have made it through. There was a lot of people that just jumped on jumped on to ride the wave of something that was trendy you see this in the capital markets all the time whether it's a particular commodity that's trendy at nickel or lithium or something's trendy at the moment and then you know going back you know we had the whole dot-com thing or or then we had a cannabis thing so the, the market loves a little trendy phase and you see all these opportunistic people will jump in and try and make a buck over a period of time and not 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 everyone's in there to try and build a proper company and so um, what I'm very – every conversation I've had in, um, you know, Little Green Farmers Investors or, or uh, the, the broken community is to be really realistic about where, this, where psychedelics are at and where they might get to. To be realistic that, that the, the best case scenario is that this is another treatment option that's available for people with mental health and um, and that it's not a silver bullet and that we're not going to cure the world of, of mental illness or anything like that. But but equally, not to shy away from the fact that it's really promising. The, the results that have been achieved, uh, whether it's in the clinical trials or the anecdotal stories you hear from the black market that's going on, people 
you know, people have amazing stories to tell, and and I think it's um, it's something that's well worth investigating. And and then I think that if if we manage that, there's a there's an old saying in um, the investor relations world of under promise and over deliver. And so as long as we manage the expectations of the capital market over where this can go, then you get people in interested in it who have the right attitude and the right understanding of where it can go and that you're not uh you know you're not disappointing people when in six months time we're not treating half of australia with psychedelic drugs or anything like that it's it sort of seems like the most expedient way to uh protect i suppose is a word against that hype cycle of opportunistic investors is to almost make it whatever tends to make that you know inverted quotes trendy it's to not make it trendy. So I think I've, um, hopefully self-praise is no praise. This is like a backhanded insult to myself, but it's like to make this untrendy and long form and evergreen simply because, you know, I want to speak to everyone so that people can do due diligence. And it's like, I do want you to, I want the average person who's really interested in this to understand. You can't just look at a spreadsheet and say, okay, I'm going to invest in that without knowing anything about it. You almost have to have a little, bit of understanding because the more you get into this the more I think people my experience with clinicians who've been doing this a long time <clears throat> is there's a real quiet confidence but there's not a revolutionary angle to it like this is going to change the world and and then whenever I heard, start hearing people speak about you know it's immediate ascent into politics I'm like okay you know let's you know let's cool our brakes a wee bit here um, so setting up a company in such a way that you almost circumnavigate that that disruptive element of people trying to make a quick buck seems to be at the heart of um, of uh, Reset Mind Science. But it is a subsidiary, as you mentioned, of Little Green Pharma. So I think it would be very, you know, historically and interesting because you said, you know, you'd had conversations with the people behind Little Green Pharma. So maybe could you take me back, Sean, to there and then we can come all the way up to, to you know, your position as CEO of Reset Mind Senses. So I think it's important to understand what's involved in in, in the current environment. So, so let's backtrack for a second of where the regulatory environment is in Australia. So the classification of drugs, I imagine a lot of people listening to this podcast are probably already aware of it, but the, the, the classification of drugs is governed by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. There's a schedule that runs in practice from one to nine, one being... Panadol, effectively, you know, commonly available, no advice needed. Nine being a prohibited substance. And at the moment, uh, psychedelic drugs are prohibited substances, Schedule 9 classification in Australia. So to handle, to deal with Schedule 9 drugs in Australia is an incredibly difficult, highly regulated environment to operate in. And so cannabis has been through this pathway and so a company like Little Green Pharma has developed over a period of time standing with regulators. Um, and it's uh, been able to achieve all of the licensing, all of the approvals, everything that's been necessary to do this by the book and to do it to pharmaceutical grade standards. And um, the time, the effort, the, the expertise, the money that's gone in to get to that point is not to be underestimated. And... Um, also fundamental to that has been uh, so Little Green Farmer is producing um, so so GMP good manufacturing practice is effectively like the uh, quality assurance standard for pharmaceutical products to enter the market. So to produce GMP grade 
medicinal products from a botanical is not easy. So we're not talking about in a lab here where you add a little bit of this, a little bit of that, do, you know, basically cook to a recipe and, and produce a predictable outcome. So, so to do that, to be able to do what they've done from a botanical product is a very, very specialised skill. Uh, and one that they're to be hugely commended for. It's, a, it's an incredible team. And so everything I've just gone through there to transfer the name mushroom for cannabis and, um, and psilocybin for the CBD or the THC, all of those skills, all of that discipline, all of that standing with the regulators is very transferable, we, we think, over to, uh, to psychedelics. And so, um, I mean, even down to the... So the facility, the West Australian facility that Little Green Farmer has to grow cannabis and produce GMP standard pharmaceutical products, um, is a there's an incredible investment that's gone into that facility. And so it's a relatively incremental add-on to grow another sort of product at that facility and, and use all of the standards and the people and the skills and everything to produce another product. So that's really been the the starting point or the reason why Little Green Farm has been able to get a seat at the table in the evolution of psychedelics in Australia. It has – I found in the early days there was, a, there was some people that, um, that I really, really wanted involved with Reset Mind Sciences. The first person I called was Dr Stephen Bright, who I know you've had on the podcast, arguably the most credentialed person in psychedelics in, in Western Australia. And as soon as he heard that the call was coming from – Little Green Farmer was instantly happy to take it, instantly happy to open a conversation because of that standing and that track record. Uh, trust been, really. The trust straight away. Um, so that's not to be underestimated. So uh, I guess the, the reason the conversation started with Little Green Farmer was um, – and, and, you know, it was a combination of me having an interest in the area and they'd also been aware of psychedelics as a, as a potential add-on for what they were doing – Natural progression, really. Um, you know, we've got this from their perspective. We've got this investment in this incredible facility, and uh, the skill base there. What else is it capable of doing? Um, so, so that was very logical, and um, so that that's been the starting point. But for me, you know, we've got to remember this is called psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So th- it's not just, and this is something that I think a lot of people are taking a while to get their head around, particularly that aren't closely in the field of psychedelics is that the normal model of the pharmaceutical world of a pill a day type thing is not what we're talking about here um you know the the psychedelics are an enabler to make the therapy effective um so the skills around the therapy and the delivery of effectively the whole ecosystem that goes around the delivery of the drug the therapy the physical environment everything that go the preparation all that type of thing I'm, I'm just as interested in that as I am in, in producing um, uh, pharmaceutical grade uh, mm-hmm. psilocybin from a botanical. The way I would think about, sorry to interrupt, but just the way I would think about whatever it happens to be, whatever the compound is, you know, the first principles thinking is an internal competency to create GMP grade in that particular compound and understanding then that that is essential but essential or necessary with a capital N, but not sufficient for the treatment outcomes which the 
for want of a better word, consumer and, and by proxy that the investor is after. You That's know? right. And the, 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 em- the emphasis over time seems to be on really on, uh, heavily understanding the what Amiria, I know Michael Winlow has been on the podcast, calls the, you know, the clinical care model. Yep. So is that a fair sort of assessment of how you see those two tests? Yeah, look, I think um, so... So I think people you can look at Little Green Pharma. You know, it's a successful producer of medicinal cannabis and supplier, and and um, it's a logical add-on for the drug. And and I'm sorry to digress for a second, but it's been very real the transferability of all that knowledge and that skill over to the work that I've been doing. We're still in the you know the early stages of it, but um, it's been amazing how useful the various various different spheres of expertise i mean very fortunate in you know we're setting up this this new business but being able to tap into you know whether it's a expert in clinical research or the tga regulation or horticulture or chemical extraction all these skills exist within the business and being able to tap into all of them so it's allowed us to accelerate forward way quicker than if we were just starting from scratch um but the the clinical care model is is equally as important and i think so so we are we're well advanced in the planning of our own clinical trial and our focus in that clinical trial will be much more around the ecosystem of the therapy or the the administration of the therapy to the patient as opposed to the the actual drug itself yeah that's in a way that's to a certain extent, dialed in by all of this antecedent work, which has been done by Little Green Pharma to develop that internal competency. So now it's a case of, you know, the the, the envelope that we're pushing and exploring and testing is going to be the context in which the substance, whether it's in the previous instance cannabinoids or in this instance psilocybin. And just before anyone starts to Google Maps, you know, Little Green Pharma is in an undisclosed location. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so you're not uh, jumping a fence anytime soon. But can I just say, we, yeah. we do occasionally take uh, people through the facility and they're always staggered by the level we have to go to to comply to with get, our yeah. Office of Drug Control would, Security. It's, would that be something? Uh, would that be something if, if we went through all that protocols? I mean, I'm very, you know, personally quite curious. Would it be okay if we could do like a sort of an outside broadcast or, you know, you take <laughs> me with the dictaphone? Is that something that we could facilitate? Yeah, we probably could. I have to think through the practicality. I mean, yeah. we even have to get to the point of taking people's phones off them and turning location yeah. services off yeah. and all those sorts of things. But I'm sure there'd be a way we could navigate yeah, it. Yeah, we'll yeah. get the full narcos. I'll have yeah. the, you know, the bag over my head and everything. But um, again, then when you start to... Uh, facetiousness aside, I can sort of... St- get a sense and I actually just want to experience the extent to what it actually takes to develop those internal competencies where the TGA are like okay you know you get a tick and and then that cull that happens in the hype cycle where everyone thinks oh I can I can do there's very few people that can you know set up their own airline for example you know not everyone likes to think they're Richard Branson but very few are not everyone's Elon Musk you know so it's it seems to be of that extremely complicated thing to do and so it's like you're not, you know, making another fidget spinner here. This is no, that's this right. Is. And and I mean, there's there's actually three regulators that we have to uh, that we have to comply sure. with and deal with. One being the TGA. So so maybe it's worth just just yeah, briefly explaining across, how yeah. how the regulators work and the like. That so we have um, to physically handle uh, Schedule Nine drugs to have possession of them. Uh, that's governed by the West Australian or by the, the respective state, in yeah. our case West Australian State Health Department. Yeah. Uh, so, so to physically, and that's more around physical security and possession of the drug and handling it in a responsible manner. Uh, so that's governed by the West Australian State Health Department in our case. 
Um, and then the TGA actually governs the production of medicines for human consumption. So they're less focused on the physical possession of the of the, the plant or the, the botanical product, if you like, and more with the production of the medicines to suitable standards. And that's where the GMP standards come in. Yeah. Um, and then we also uh, have to navigate through the Office of Drug Control for the movement of the drugs as well. So in a lot of cases, we actually sit down and go, so who, if there's something happening, who governs this? And it's often not clear, particularly in the case of psychedelics, where yeah. you speak to a lot of the regulators and they're dealing with psychedelics for the first time. Sure. And so there's no precedent. There's no precedent. And uh, albeit that they're probably looking in a lot of cases to cannabis as a pres- as a precedent, there's a lot of parallels. But in a lot of cases, we're setting the precedence of how they deal with psychedelics. Um, and so, having that standing and having credibility with them is incredibly important. To just walk mm-hmm. in off the street and think that you're going to have the standing to deal with these various regulators mm-hmm. uh, and and be allowed to handle Schedule Nine substances is. Mm-hmm. That, that's not something that, that is it, – it's a big hurdle to jump, yeah. I guess. It seems – you know, they're often pilloried, but, you know, government organisations, um, they're designed to be, you know, cruise liners, not speedboats. So they, they have to – you know, because they have to chart a long course. So I think when, whenever I hear Rick Doblin talking about, uh, you know, their relationships with the FDA – sometimes certain elements are baiting him to be like, you know, the man type thing. And he's like, no, we have a perfectly good relationship. They've been very responsive, but there are obviously checks and balances that have to go through. So, you know, um, it just, I think, bears repeating that government organisations are in this sphere really trying to do things which they're not, you know, modally set up to do. So I'm sure they're going to have to pivot in various different ways. And this is a cool creation because new things come online. We have a new vaccine, which everyone has to facilitate. I saw a thing in the city centre there, you know, new regulations around e-scooters. You think, okay, it's not always the man. It's trying to regulate, um, you know, things so that to keep people, to find that sweet spot between safety and, and liberty. And Stephen Bright, who's been on the podcast, makes a good point that it's actually easier to, to regulate things quite highly to begin with and then turn that template down instead of trying to upregulate, um, you know, and we have um, proof of concept with that, with trying to, you know, get cigarette or alcohol companies to, to do, you know, to do it, make a tiny change. So those fostering of that relationships, I would imagine you've got a lot of skills between fostering relationships between investors and companies. Those are probably coming into play when you're working between, you, you know, the company and the actual government themselves. They're certainly helpful. And I guess people have different approaches to these sorts of things. And I guess some people some people have a mindset of railing against the system. The system is wrong. The system is broken. They should do this. They should do that. My approach is more, this is the system. These are the regulators. This is the pathway we've got to do and to navigate that pathway. And that requires patience. Uh, but I think in um, in navigating through that, I believe there's a lot of advantage. Then ultimately, if we do, if we fast forward and we get to a point where this is a treatment that is available to the general population, if a company like us has uh, navigated properly and responsibly through the various regulators, that will stand us in good stead longer yeah. term. And so, that is the sort of standing that you've got with the relevant. Uh, organisations, you know, entities within the government who are having to talk with you guys and each other. So now we need to be very careful to explain Little Green Pharma is working with 
the government and a list and the show notes of all the different state regulations, which I know are on your the Little Green Farmer website. So there's obviously that interplay there. But Reset Mind Sciences is a subsidiary and it is positioning the company that you're the CEO of is positioning itself not with cannabinoids or it's with psilocybin, which is the you know active ingredient and in, I don't really like the term but magic mushrooms. Yep. So talk to me a little bit about you know how uh, the the genesis of of that, um, and you guys are maybe a year in. You said from like the roughly, yeah, that's right. Like, yep. Give or take, it's about a, we were a year long that pathway. So we're transitioning now from into the subsidiary of Reset Mind Sciences. What what were the initial conversations like with with the relevant you know powers that be? What how did that sort of pick, get pitched and, and ultimately decided on within Little Green Pharma? Within within Little Green Farm and then also you know. Yeah. Sort of out, outwardly facing, like sure. how do you guys sort of so the, transition? So I guess the, the the way we looked at it from the conversations, or the, the building, the growing of momentum within Little Green Farmer was given the the various spheres of expertise that existed within Little Green Farmer, I guess from their side was to look at it from those different areas. Could we grow these? Could we, is our facility use, you know, could we grow, could we grow the mushrooms? Could our facility produce GMP medicines? Could we navigate the regulators? Is there a business here? Do we have, you know, is there value in clinical trial? All these sorts of questions that you come at it from different angles. And um, it just comes back to, I can't stress enough the genuineness of the transferabil- transferability of all that knowledge and all that history. There's been a couple of things that have, I can't think of a specific example, but a couple of things that have come up uh, looking specifically at the psychedelics and uh, talking to some of the people that have been at Little Green Pharma since the start. You know, we tried that with cannabis or so we went down that like a that certain roadblock that's been it, before. It has saved me going down so many rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's allowed it's allowed me to learn from all of their experience to to keep moving forward. So I guess from Little Green Farmer's perspective, it was a case of they they're very much about it's it's very, very genuine when you speak to the people in there that they're about making a difference in patient lives. And so I guess it sat philosophically it sat well with the organization that if this did work, it it would make a different difference to patient lives. Um, that there was significant existing skill and capability within the organisation that was transferable. Um, and then, from a cold hard economic point of view, the incremental investment to get into it was relatively minor, given the the level of investment that was already made in the facility that uh, that they have. So. So to be honest, in the the conversations we had, it was a pretty easy – it was a pretty logical, easy decision to make um, to enter another sphere, coming back to this point again of producing pharmaceutical-grade medicines from from botanical base products. Um, That's a real skill that that they have, investment in facility and all of the other capability that existed within the organisation – um, it didn't take much to, you know, just bring me in. Effectively, what where the conversations were early in the piece was, um, we really like this. We, we really believe in this. We really think there's an area here, but cannabis is our main focus. This is always going to sit down the priority list and never get the attention that it's going to need unless we bring in someone to really drive it and have and have designated responsibility to drive it. And so that's where the conversation started with me mm. to come in and do that. It's um, in terms of you know infrastructure to to create like a the GMP grade, that is 
that is uh, fairly analogous, but from uh, coming more into the therapeutic side of things, from a phenomenological perspective, they are very different animals. Um, and uh, the thing that I like to point listeners to is that discussing psilocybin particularly with people who haven't had an experience can be difficult because it, it really is quite ineffable. It's hard to, you know, especially if people think, oh yeah, I've got it, it's a bit like this. And you're like, no, it's highly context specific and it's not like other things. Um, there's an organization called Synthesis and I know there are numerous now. Uh, the best place to actually look for legal places in, internationally is through the Mind Medicine Australia website. They have quite a good, I think a decently curated list of places where you can go and experience this. Well, I do apologise that the audio isn't perfect. I hope you're enjoying the conversation nonetheless. Uh, Just one of the wires was a bit faulty, but um, I only picked it up and posted it. But it doesn't get much worse, and, you know, it's pretty pretty audible throughout. Um, So hopefully it doesn't impact your enjoyment too much. While I have you, it would really help the show out if you could leave a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your, your podcasts from. And please feel free to share this on social media, through WhatsApp. Uh, As Sean is alluding to, there's lots of people who are just on the cusp of coming into this space and sharing content with them can really help to whet their appetite. So uh, back to the chat and I'll see you on the other side. So when it comes to the, the experience, once we're in a position to have psilocybin, you know, administered legally to people in Australia. First of all, it would be great to get a timeline for what, what, what I mean, I mean, nobody knows the future, Sean, but like, what, what is your sort of timeline for, for, for that and, and what's the context? Well, firstly, I like your optimism that you say once it's available. So. <laughs> I mean, I think those of us in, this, in the field feel like that there is a feeling of inevitability that it will happen, but um, who knows? It, it could take a while to get there. I feel like uh, people may well be aware of the decision by the Therapeutic Goods Administration uh, in December 2021 to, de- to deny down scheduling from nine to eight. Um, so for those that aren't aware, that the, the TGA during the course of 2021 issued initially an interim decision denying down scheduling from nine to eight then appointed an independent panel in an, in an interim, um, independent expert panel in uh, over the course of the year, and then issued a final decision in December denying down scheduling. And so I feel like for the moment, the regulators have have opined on this issue. So, so I'm not looking for it in the near term, in the very near term. I feel like that if we take a step back from uh, and, and look at this from the sidelines, I have to say I didn't give... I didn't have any hope that the TGA would down schedule last year. I think if you look at the macro situation, the regulators that they look to around the world, the US, the UK, Canada, none of them have down scheduled um, and, and research is the most advanced in the US. Um, in Australia, we had one we have at the moment, as we speak, one clinical trial that's actually recruiting patients and treating patients at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. We know that there's a number of trials that are in the planning and and are expected to start during calendar 22. And we had the federal government's grant program 
which was just announced, the award of those grants was just announced recently, $15 million to accelerate trial work into psychedelics. You step back and look at the dynamics, there was no way the TGA was going to down schedule and, and um, uh, ahead of all that work being done. It seems so obvious to me, and, and I think this was borne out in the final decision that the that the TGA issued was that I'm paraphrasing here. I don't have the the exact wording in front of me, but it was to the extent of the clinic. This promising clinical trial work here, um, but at this point in time, it doesn't meet the criteria to down schedule. But that doesn't preclude us. It doesn't preclude us from doing all this research and then having another look at it when we get to the end. So, I feel like the TGA has laid the groundwork to have another look at this once we've got more evidence from research it's it's not like there it's in at no point in any of the wording and i'll link to all that is there you know not an agreement in principple it's just the the chronology that has to go through is they almost don't want to make special case necessarily there might be accelerated expedient routes money freed up to do that but there would always be a question mark i think i almost want it to be done in yes. a standard way so that in 10 years there isn't this worry that it would be rescinded because it wasn't right. done properly. There's a process, in, and, and again, it comes back to an earlier point that we are talking around, around do you rail against the system or do you work with the system? And the system in Australia is what it is to, to get towards um, treatments that are available to the, to the general public. So, um, look, I think you're right. The, the TGA decision didn't in any way – there wasn't a tone in there of saying, what are we thinking? This is crazy. This is, this is, they, they acknowledge the promise of the clinical work, but we should point out they were concerned about the illicit use, that, that it might facilitate greater illicit use of the substances. And so that has to be acknowledged and that has to be addressed in, in the way we would ultimately – get the product into the into the general population and i think that um i certainly might this is just a personal view i don't envisage from from the way our regulators seem to and, and this isn't just the tga but across the various regulators the way the australian environment seems to work i don't foresee a situation in in any time soon where psychedelic drugs would legally be put in the hands of patients i think they would only be administered by a clinician to the patient, um, and then and then obviously the accompanying psychotherapy and the like. But from a physical possession and administration of the drug, I don't, I can't foresee a situation where you get your bottle of psilocybin pills to go home and take one a day type of thing. I, I just I, don't see I, that happening. I think yeah, even if it was, you know, even if it was all cushy with whatever government regulatory bodies i would personally i think you would never want to be involved with that because you know you just think it wouldn't be optimal in terms of outcomes and it certainly wouldn't be safe and um that's why a sort of critical mass of people whether they're you know you know in the public domain information about that i think there is a building understanding if people have had these substances before to say that's just not a that's not a that's not a sensible um container for things um yeah and just for people that are interested, I have spoken with Mark Ross, who's one of the principal investigators in the St. Vincent trial. And yeah. like a lot of things, unfortunately, you know, the, the timelines for these have been blown out indefinitely by COVID. So um, it's not like someone's, you know, the man isn't holding this back. It's, yep. <laughs> it's, it's coronavirus as much as anything and, else. And I mean, look, too, that, that also plays back into the, if you think about uh, or have some sympathy for the TGA in looking at down scheduling, this isn't their, wasn't their first priority last year. They're, 
this was, um, you know, well down the list of all the COVID issues that they've had to deal with. So um, I just I just thought if you if you look at it from the sidelines, all the building blocks were there for them to deny down scheduling, and and I I think it's the appropriate decision. And to give some again, which is sort of odd, you know, there'd be. I've always been a wee bit concerned about a, a small, but I think a quite small, but very vocal minority in the world of psychedelia who are very radical. And, you know, if someone says, hello, my name is a politician, all of a sudden they think equals evil. And you think that's just such a low resolution view. And I, I, from a therapist's perspective, when people start talking in those really low resolution ways, you know, the, the sort of tediously common thing is that it's just a projection of their own unsolved, you know, unprocessed trauma and I'm thinking, you obviously haven't used psychedelics in, in any sort of optimal way, but the politicians they have to function in their ecosystem and you're subject to the political cycle like everybody else and whenever there's a, you know, a, a national, international crisis it's not appropriate to start bringing up things which are a little bit left of centre you know, you're, you're not going to be in the room the next time the discussion is actually going to have, so I think there's probably a groundswell of support at the political level, which we will see come to the fore once COVID is legitimately in the rear view mirror, I feel like it's well, and a credit where credit's support. due, the $15 million grant program to accelerate research, you don't do that unless unless it's an acknowledged area of interest. Yeah, it's like a, it's a decent, it's not, not jump change. Mm. Um, so um, what are you most interested about in terms of the, we've talked a little bit about the substance and how it, it's similar but also different in, in, it, in the way that it, you know, operates. Um, what are you most interested to explore from the context, from the, let's call it the, the for want of a better term, the medical container? What 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 really is piquing your interest at the minute, Sean, in, around psilocybin? Around the drug itself or the administration? Yeah, it? I suppose the administration, yeah. you know, like where... where so I think, um, so as I look around the world at the different companies that are involved in psychedelics, m- my view is that there is a disproportionate amount of work being done trying to develop novel synthetic variants of psychedelic drugs. I'm far more interested in... I, I feel like nature's given us the compounds here that, that create the psychedelic effect and that's an enabler for the efficiency of or for the effectiveness of the psychotherapy that comes along with it. And so I'm much more interested in that aspect of it rather than than trying to investigate novel uh, drug variants. And so we've put together for reset, we've got a clinical advisory board, which I, I don't pretend to be a clinician. I don't pretend to have the skills in that regard. So uh, we've put together a clinical advisory board that is very much focused around uh, the therapy side of it. So our clinical advisory board is Stephen Bright, who you've had on your podcast. Um, another clinical psychologist in Melbourne, a lady named Renee Harvey, who she was part of the clinical therapy team for the Imperial College London trials, has a huge amount of experience in actually administering the therapy in a, in a clinical trial environment. And then another lady named Eternity Housen, who has founded a business called Enlightened Mental Health, which is providing... Uh, the integration counselling for people or the integration therapy for people that have had their own psychedelic experience. So these are all people that coming from slightly different angles, but these are all people who are focused on the therapy and, and the delivery of that patient care. So I'm really interested in that and, and, and tapping into their experience and, and their knowledge in um, in the design of, of the clinical trial work that we're, mm-hmm. that we're planning. So there's a... Um in a way, like analogous to 
you're saying, uh, you know, you were helped to maybe avoid certain roadblocks or dead ends from an infrastructure perspective by the Little Green Farmers you know, previous experience, I can imagine that that will come to the fore for Renee when she's like, oh no, don't do that because we did that in London and it, you know, it didn't, 100%. didn't work. Um, she's been a, she's been a fantastic, um, I, I don't know if you know Renee, but she's a really, she, she gives off a really calm sense of wisdom about her and um, her input into, into everything that we're doing has been very valuable. And also her introductions into some of the um, Imperial College London team as People, well, which yeah. has been great. The um, one thing, one of the standout areas, I mean, alongside, say, Johns Hopkins, I think Imperial College were really in that sphere where, you know, testing, trying, subtly changing uh, the clinical care model. The emergence of um, the importance of music, I think they really... Um, helped me to fully understand that and there's a chap who I'd love to have on the future called Mendel Kalin who designed some of their playlists um, so the interplay between music and, and psilocybin is really something which I find if people are saying to me oh yeah I had you know mushrooms once you know you obviously have these personal conversations but the synergy between those two I think unless it's been set up in that correct context it's like someone saying oh yeah I've, I've heard an orchestra and I'm like no you heard somebody whistle that tune on a kazoo you're not in the same you know you're really not in the same uh universe um so i would imagine that music has been something which renee is is really trans- trying to transpose excuse the pun yeah it's that? it's actually really interesting because you know i'm, I'm a relatively a newcomer to this field and, and like i've said a couple of times here i'm not from a clinical care model when we sit down and talk about as a as a therapy, you know, getting the therapy team together, and we're talking about where we're going and planning, and like, I've actually been surprised at how much music is a topic of conversation. I think it's something that it's easy to just treat as an afterthought or uh, something that we'll just sort out later. But curating playlists or managing the mood and pace of the session and everything really seems to be something that's really important and um and it's i mean even on you know all of our spotify accounts now you see all these psychedelic playlists coming up and um i know that Stephen is spending a lot of time listening and evaluating to to various playlists yeah it's uh it seems initially arbitrary but then um there's quite a lot of good work getting done on testing in situ you know, with actual biomarkers, what's happening, where people are at with, with the music. And um, one thing that Ben Sessa, who's previously been on, mentioned, he's he's works out of um, Bristol, but the cultural container that Michael Pollan talks about, it's going to be pretty regionally specific. So he, he get, I'm paraphrasing what Ben says, but he, he was conscious that if he were to try and just completely import the type and style of music and feel of the work coming out of the research centres in Southern California on the, you know, his working class clients in, <laughs> in Western Supermary, like a tough seaside town, they're just going to be like, I don't, what are you giving me this music and a mandala? I want to listen to X, Y, and Z. So I almost feel like we need to have an Australian conversation that's separate from an American or an English conversation. I don't know, like, has that come up where it's like, okay, how are we going to reappropriate these modalities, but in a, in a more specific context? Yeah, we haven't quite got into the level of detail yeah, yeah, yet, yeah. Other, than, um, start, other than we know that it's a really important area that's not to be left 
to the last moment. We're not quite at the point yet where we're recruiting patients or ready to quite get into it, but absolutely. I mean, as much as, you know, we're looking at different sites as to where we will do our clinical trial. We've got a preferred site, which I can't name yet, but um, but all the thought that goes into if we use this site, how are we going to lay out the room? How are we going to sort out lighting? Even down to practicalities of how do we take, how do we get the person to the toilet during the day? Because obviously we're talking six or eight hours of potential patient treatment. So um, how do we get them to the toilet without having to interact with the outside world and all of these levels of minutiae that, that I have to say I, I hadn't thought through and wasn't really aware of until we started talking about them. Mm-hmm. So like the granularity of detail that would be, and that's where expertise comes in because in a way like maybe somebody comes to you and says, Oh, yeah, I've, I've, I've managed that spreadsheet and you're like, you, you haven't done the first pass on this. This is not specific enough. It's it's a case of everybody working together to be like, okay, how can we make this as, as high resolution as it needs to be? I, I fully believe that there's going to be an extra, uh, a differentiation of outcomes and the people who pay attention to really pay attention to that. It's like a, like any customer experience, you know, what the, what the people, people don't, an airline's someone's experience of an airline is like the engines need to work the plane needs to fly you need to not die and fall into the sea but you know if you don't get your wee hot towel at the start of your flight you're a bit disappointed so you you like an airplane analogy don't you are you you a budding Richard Branson or something (laughs) so we just need to I suppose focus on that clinical care model side of things Um, in terms of going forward there's obviously a lot of unknowns around Outcomes, clinical trials, COVID—you know, just like the, the just the the normal, the normal cut and thrust of of markets and and things going by the wayside. If other companies are listening and are in similar positions, would you have any? Because I think there's there's plenty of room in the sun. Would you have any advice for other companies who are trying to position themselves so that they're still training, you know, still improving in in ten, fifteen, twenty years time? Like, what what's your sort of long term? advice to yourself and others look i think uh, what's become very clear to me is not to underestimate the regulatory environment and um and and to accept it and to learn to navigate it i think that's as i look at the success that little green farmer has been able to get to and the and the head start that that's given us that would probably be the area that has really stood out to me as to a lot of businesses you're in there is a regulator and there's a set of regulations and there's um, uh, the, the compliance side of it is relatively clear. This is, com- this is complex and, um, and fair enough too, because we're dealing with human welfare as opposed to, you know, banking or mining or, or, or whatever else. So, Rightly so. So, look, I think that's something that has really stood out to me as to how tightly regulated. And it, to be honest, it, it gives me more, as a relative newcomer to it, it's given me more faith in the Australian health system that that if they say it's okay, if it's been through all those trials, it's given me a level of confidence that I, I wasn't really aware of or that level of scrutiny before coming into this world. So um, just from my own personal mindset, that's been very applicable to COVID and, and everything going on. But um, I, yeah, look, I think that would be, that would be my standout point. And I, I guess too, from my perspective, um, 
to not pretend to know what you don't know. <laughs> I've, we've been able to uh, lean on people with expertise that that uh, I, I don't pretend to have, and um, uh, I and that's allowed me to access. And I guess being a relatively early mover in the space in Perth or in, in Australia, even and with the standing that Little Green Farmer has, we've been able to access really high quality people across the board and um, um, that's given me a lot of encouragement. So I'm not quite sure why that links back to your question, but um, I guess that understanding of the regulatory environment, putting yourself in the position of those that are looking at you as a regulator or as an investor or as a potential employee or a customer or whoever they might be, what, what do you look like in, through their eyes and um, uh, that's that's been that, that's been something that I've been very conscious of since we've come in it's it's like the psychedelic experience can be you know quite existentially humbling and this is like in a, but in a way that the, the process of getting it into people's you know optimizing it is quite organizationally humbling because yeah. you realize you don't even know you know I've I've been every time I prepare for a podcast I'm like Oh my God! I don't. I didn't even know. I didn't even know that thing existed. That I don't. I didn't know anything. About. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know it. It, it was a thing. Um, but I don't know. I think that. I, I think that keeps you, keeps you alive. You know, it's a nice feeling. It does. Like, if, you're, if you're curious and um, and want to move in the right um, direction. Well, certainly from a you know from a personal professional point of view, it, like I'd been doing what I'd been doing for a long period of time. So to come into something very new, it's very refreshing to. To uh, to be immersing yourself in something new that you're learning every day, and I've, I've very quickly learned there's not a whole lot of experts in psychedelics in Australia. There's a lot of people that know bits and pieces and have their specific area, but um, so to to kind of uh, immerse yourself in an area, a whole lot of reading, a whole lot of conversations, it's it's very refreshing. Yeah, very sti- mentally stimulating. There's a lot of people know how to play the fiddle. There's not a lot know how to play the violin. <laughs> <laughs> um, a question I ask everyone is a sort of two-parter. Uh, I'm just very conscious of your time, and, and I appreciate your expertise as well. It's been it's been really useful for me to hear that sort of side of things. Um, when it comes to psychedelics, generally, what gets you out of bed in the morning, and what are you most worried about before you go to sleep? So, you know, what are you most enthusiastic about, and what are you most concerned about? So, the enthusiasm bit's easy. Um, I think I. As I've said to you, I have no – there's no question in my mind over the patient need, demand, want for a treatment like this that's that's different to the antidepressant market. So to play some role in helping to bring that to fruition, um, that's, that's very satisfying. I think you find a lot of people will have a, you know, later in work life or midlife change and go and work for a not-for-profit because they feel like they want to do something good. There's an element of that. In this for me, and that, um, in that, if if we achieve what what we set out to achieve, we we will make a difference to a lot of people's lives, and that's um, that's very uh, that's a very motivating factor. Uh, what concerns me is um, that we have another Timothy Leary moment in this, in that it gets done in a half baked way, and. Um, I can I can see a risk that if somehow this doesn't happen properly, that the whole thing gets set back another five or ten years, and so that's why I'm a I feel like I'm a little bit more 
patient and acknowledging of the timeframes and some of the people I've spoken to in this sphere um, because I feel like for the greater good, for the longer term, if we do this right, um, we, do it, we do it right the first time, we learn from, from those times, we learn from the cannabis experience, we can shorten the timeframes to bring it to reality. And so my great concern is that someone derails it. Yeah. I just uh, I'm packing up what you're putting down because it's so nice to be involved in an area where your central your central concern that some people have I think in other industries is or other fields of life projects whatever endeavors is this really going to make any difference that is not a question that I no. ever have one cell in my body answers so I'm, I'm with you on that and then in terms of you know someone taking this and just absolutely screwing it up or one person one so i think we all have it seems like we have that all that responsibility whatever however we're coming into this it's you know how can how can and if it's five ten years the opportunity cost for there's a lot of australians a lot of people internationally that will suffer a lot on unnecessary so no i think i i I really welcome i welcome people into the space who feel the same and i think we've got to be careful about that because i've one thing I've really noticed over the last, say, 12 months is the increased coverage and awareness of psychedelics in the general media, in the general population. When I first started having conversations with my previous cohort of people that I worked with, say, 12 months ago, there was this blank look on their face trying to work out if I was actually having a gag with them over what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. And then they realise I'm serious and they kind of – you can see their brain's – trying to compute at a million yeah. miles an hour. Now I'd have to say the vast majority of people I speak to, oh, yeah, I've read an article about that, I've heard a podcast, I've watched Fantastic Fungi or something like that. And so that's fantastic, but what it does mean is it heightens the, the level of broad media and public awareness of it is that if it does go off the rails, the effect of that will be magnified because the awareness is higher. Yeah, that's such a good point that it's just there's just more people that are going to notice yeah. and take it take it sideways. It's just going to go sideways with blinkers on. Um, so I think it's really good for everyone to keep those two things in, uh, in mind. You know, it's like hope and derailment. <laughs> just have, I think it's a case of just hopefully feeding one and, and you know trying to starve out the other. Um, listen, Sean, thank you so much for your time and just your insight into hold the few feelings for be, and your candor really as well. Um, I'd love to have future conversations and you know put a bag on my head and take my phone off me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, if people want to learn a little bit more about you know where, well, two things, where would you direct? Um, people to in terms of you know your your professional world and is there anything that comes up it could be a podcast a person whose work you've enjoyed a book you know maybe something to direct people professionally to find out more about your work and then also something which a resource which maybe people you think would, would be useful for people who are maybe a bit more fresh to this yeah I've been um, I've actually been using a lot of that mainstream media to send out to people I, the beauty of it now is that I've sort of uh, I've, got a, I've actually got a relatively standard email that I send to people with links to 60 Minutes or to the Financial Review or The Guardian or whatever. And, and um, so I've, I would actually encourage people to just, depending on the bent that they come from, whether they are from the financial world or whether they're clinicians or whatever, I think you'll find whatever your mode of consumption is, whatever your emphasis, you know, sort of topic of emphasis is, there's now psychedelics coverage for that and so um, 
I mean, I think as we all know, you don't have to dig too hard now to find some really good stuff out there. Um, and so I've found that very reassuring. I, I, look, I don't have any specific article that I think is the be-all and end-all. I mean, I think everyone has looked at uh, Michael Pollan's book. I mean, I, I sort of, in my mind, I don't know whether I've, this is just my perception or not, in my mind that was the kind of seminal book that really brought it into the mainstream consciousness and really I feel like the New York Times coverage of psychedelics followed pretty heavily off the back of that book and then from the New York Times it's you know a lot spread out into the and I think I feel like New York Times coverage kind of made it okay for a lot of other media outlets to kind of all right well we can what's this what's going on here so um, give it a legitimacy that it maybe it's given a, exactly right that's the way to put it and so um, look I think there's enough of it out there that people don't really need need specific guidance I like that idea of just maybe as a little generic sort of template experiment is it's type your job title or a job that you think you'd be good at mm-hmm. and then just put a comma and then just put psychedelics and you're going to get a load of noise and a little bit of signal and then yeah. so maybe that would prevent the sort of you know um echo chamber in a yes. way of you know like or, or whatever your angle you're coming in at it that yeah well, one thing i have noticed since um i don't know it's probably i don't know a couple of months now since uh, fantastic fungi's gone up on netflix the number of texts i've had from people have you seen this is this what you're doing How, this is unbelievable this is fantastic <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so i think that that is a very consumable for, for people that aren't that's sort of on a generic introduction or generic knowledge that's not specific to any particular area. That's a very consumable documentary, I think, that's very good. Well, we'll link to everything and obviously all the links to various bioinformation, you know, the companies that you're involved with and any sort of conflicts of interest. We'll just sort of cover that all. So as always, I direct people not to social media, to the show <laughs> notes, to a boring old website, um, simply so that you can just go there and like use that as a launch pad because um, just educate yourself on some of the stuff that um, Sean has spoken about you can deep dive us for hours and hours and bring back uh, a working knowledge because I think that's what you know we and whoever's currently involved when people enter that field the generic piece of advice I would, would say is do a little bit of homework before you know obviously interact with people but you know you've got internet so look stuff up and, and educate yourself so that we're all not coming in totally green excuse the pun <laughs> but, so thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it and i'm hoping to have conversations with you in the future and my keep pleasure going forward. it was nice to reflect on the journey i hadn't actually really consciously done that before that was really good <laughs> thanks, thank you all right thanks well i hope you enjoyed that conversation and as always there's detailed show notes just head to mindmanifestpodcast.com and then the podcast's subheading, you'll find links to everything that myself and Sean have discussed. So I mentioned at the top of this episode that I had some exciting news. So I am very pleased to announce that we are having our first ever live event. It is called the Summer Symposium and it is on Sunday the 6th of February in Rollystone in the beautiful Perth Hills It's from 2 to 5.30pm and we're going to have a live panel uh, format discussion uh, where we're going to actually record a podcast in front of this small intimate audience. Uh, We have uh, on the deck, we have uh, Jeremy Tannenbaum from the Anodyne Centre, who's a psychiatrist and who has previously been a guest on the podcast. 
Michael Winlow, who is uh, an MD and the Managing Director of Ameria, who again has been on the podcast. And last but not least, we have Stephen Bright, who is uh, going to be one of the country's first, Australia's first psychedelic-assisted psychotherapist. And he is a psychedelic researcher at Edith Cowan University and also has been on the podcast. So it's really fantastic to have uh, three uh, chaps of this calibre in discussion. Um, I think we're going to get a lot of viewpoint diversity and I think it'll be as much fun as it is hopefully quite collegiate. Um, We also have um, some live music afterwards and really just an opportunity for people in this space to to meet in a sort of more informal setting. Uh, You can go to mindmanifestpodcast.com and you will find in there's a drop down section called Summer Symposiums. Full details are obviously there and you can apply uh, to attend. Now this is quite a sort of select audience so everyone is welcome to apply but I can't guarantee that everyone will be able to attend and full details about location uh, and all the other sort of logistics uh, if uh, your application is successful will be sent to you and so hopefully you can be here in, in the audience we're going to make it quite participatory so there will be a Q&A section so I just think it's going to be a wonderful afternoon and yeah everyone seems to be really keen in this space to just connect really and I'm as much looking forward to the chats and the networking afterwards just catching up with people as I am to the actual podcast so as I said just go to mindmanifestpodcast.com summer symposiums to um, sort of express your interest and fingers crossed you'll be on the guest list so until next time folks take care